Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. You can find out lots more about me at keithedwards.com. On today's live broadcast, we're talking about student, student affairs, underemployment, and unemployment. This episode of Student Affairs Live is part of the Higher Ed Live Network. All of our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be part of our live podcast by sharing your knowledge. Participate in today's discussion by tweeting us using Higher Ed Live hashtag. Thanks so much to Erica Thompson for tweeting at Higher Ed Live and monitoring today's back channel. If you have questions for our panelists, please tweet with the hashtag Higher Ed Live, and we'll do our best to incorporate them into the conversation today. We broadcast Student Affairs Live approximately twice each month on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Today's live broadcast is powered by Platform Q, Education's Conduit Online Engagement Platform. Learn how to integrate continuous online engagement into your marketing and enrollment plans using Conduit using platformqedu.com. All of our episodes are recorded. They're free and easy to access in the video archives at higheredlive.com. Or take Higher Ed Live with you on the go by subscribing to our podcast. We're going to get a tweet out uh, with the uh, with the archives as well as some information on platformq.edu. This is the first uh, Student Affairs Live. I think it's the first higher ed live episode of any kind on the new platformq.edu platform. So we're really grateful for that partnership. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. Higher Ed Live um, it, if you are a marketing or communications professional who works on your institution's website, M. Stoner's Advanced Marketing for Higher Education course is now available on demand and has something for everyone, especially those of you who want wear many hats. You'll walk away better understanding your key audiences, how to create exceptional content with better planning, how to move your website from a capital project to an ongoing process, and more. We're tweeting out a link to learn more about the on-demand course here shortly. And now on today, today's awesome show. Uh, today we're talking about the experiences of being under and unemployed in student affairs. We know this happens in student affairs, but it's rarely talked about for all sorts of reasons. Today we have four awesome, brave folks who are here to share their experiences of being under and unemployed in student affairs, as well as some scholarship around this. I'm so grateful for their willingness to share their experiences. Um, I'd love to have each of you introduce yourself and tell us just a bit about your story. And we're going to kick this off with Connor. Hi, everyone. Uh, so my name is Connor McLaughlin. I use he, him, and they, them pronouns. Uh, I currently serve as a senior lecturer in the Department of Higher Education and Student Affairs at Bowling Green State University. Um, my, uh, I've had two experiences of unemployment in my career. The first was after I termed out of a position that had a cap on the number of years the contract could be renewed. And after I no longer had that position. I was unemployed for about 15 months. Uh, I stayed involved in the field by doing some volunteer work and basically working for free for that 15 months before taking an interim position in that same office and then starting a PhD program. I also was unemployed uh, for uh, about six months after I finished my PhD. And the reason that I sort of left the uh, space of unemployment was actually because I took a job outside of the field while continuing to search for a job in student affairs. 
or in the higher ed world, I should say. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much, Connor. Uh, we're glad to have you here. And, and many folks should know that Connor has been the instigator of this through some conversations uh, that he and I have been having for, for over a year now. And so really glad for you to put this uh, the idea for this episode on the radar. Uh, let's move over to uh, Gerilyn. Tell us a little bit about you. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is John Williams. I use she or hers pronouns. And I currently work as a program coordinator in the Pace Center for Civic Engagement at Princeton University. And um, my experience with unemployment came after I finished my graduate uh, master's degree in May of 2017. Um, and I was unemployed until around May of 2018. And at that time, I found myself um, kind of going back into retail, needed something to do. Um, and in the interim, I was doing some consulting and speaking and things like that, mostly for free, just trying to you know, keep up on my skills and stay engaged. And then I was able to uh, find this position um, at Princeton in August. And so uh, I do credit my community um, and my family for really supporting me through this time. I don't think I would be able to kind of keep the faith for that long. Um, and it's a tough journey, I do think, for you know lots of folks that go through unemployment no matter how long. Um, but even longer than that, I think, you know, it's an experience and something that I think we all should continue talking about. Great. Thanks so much. We're glad you're here. And did you what is what is exactly your title there at Princeton? So yeah, I'm a program coordinator, and so right now that means I oversee a couple different programs around civic and community engagement. Awesome, awesome. And Alandis, tell us a little bit about you. Hi everyone, I'm Alandis Johnson. I use they, them, their pronouns. Um, I've been unemployed twice in my life, once um, between my master's and getting my first full-time professional position. Um, I was only un unemployed for about a month. Um, during that period. And then this period has been much longer. I finished my PhD in December of 2017 and have been unemployed since then. Um, I've taken a number of jobs in the interim while I've been job searching, but I'm still technically unemployed in higher ed. All right. Well, we're so glad to have you joining us today. And Mohammed, tell us a little bit about you. Oh, thank you. Uh, my name is Mohammed, and I use the he, him, uh, uh, his pronouns. Um, I have been unemployed, underemployed, uh, uh, straddling that a little bit. Uh, uh, the first time, well, both of the time, they were voluntary unemployment, uh, but uh, there were reasons uh, um, some family reasons, um, and then uh, I, I actually had to move back to uh, my home country to take care of my mom. Uh, that was just the byproduct of uh, being um, uh, unemployed, uh, but it was, uh, I could not have planned it a little bit any any better than that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm really good. So while I was uh, overseas, I actually volunteered uh, at uh, 
um, uh, at a company because I was thinking maybe I will move back home. And that is still on the table because my mom is uh, every single day when I call her, this is exactly what she says, you need to move back. And that's what the relatives tell me that I need to move back. Everybody tells me how I should live my life. Uh, and uh, that's what happens when you come from a collective uh, culture background. Um, uh, currently, I am a, 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 an adjunct professor uh, for Richland College uh, here in Dallas, and I'm teaching a dual credit class uh, to high school students. Uh, so I don't see myself as unemployed anymore, but underemployed. I could possibly teach a lot more classes, uh, but then I'm also working on my dissertation and the review, uh, uh, revision writing of my dissertation that is taking a lot of my time. So. I, I have not even been applying for jobs. Uh, the last one I applied was maybe early February because I came across the position. Otherwise, um, December was actually the last active time that I was really seeking for something and applying. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to thank all four of you for sharing this. This is going to be difficult things to talk about and difficult things to share publicly, but uh, I really appreciate you opening up and sharing this because I think um, there are many folks and some folks are even chiming in over Twitter about their own experiences. Um, and uh, and I think even for people who, who haven't had this experience or aren't in this experience right now, they know people who are and want to learn how to support them. Um, I'd love to hear from each of you what you've learned from these experiences. I'd love to hear what you've learned about yourself and what you've learned about student affairs as a, as the work, as the profession, as a community. Um, so maybe, Gerilyn, maybe you can lead off with this. What, what have you been learning through your experiences about yourself and the profession of student affairs? Absolutely. So I think what I've learned is that as a culture and society, I think we're very much socialized to find our value and self-worth through, you know, what we do, our work. Um, and I think about, like, when you introduce yourself to people, a lot of times the first thing people might ask you is, what do you do? And that can mean lots of different things, but I think the most common reaction is oftentimes what your work is. And so I think for me, um, I learned about how much, you know, of my own self-worth and meaning I had placed upon, you know, achieving um, a certain level of, you know, job security, uh, a certain type of job, a certain uh, way of being um, that wasn't, you know, coming to fruition right after graduation for me um, and how much um, that, you know, really took a toll on me ment mentally and physically um, and took a toll on, like, my community around me. And so um, that is something that I've definitely learned about myself and something I'm, you know, working on <laughs> as, as I, you know, continue to do this work and, and find myself in the field of higher education. Um, I've also learned there's lots of ways that I can utilize my skills and expertise. I have a lot of friends that work in education in different ways, not just in higher ed or folks that work in nonprofits. And so I think this journey um, for, my, for me also showed me how I can, you know, utilize my skills in those areas. And so, you know, if higher ed, um, you know, doesn't end up being, you know, a forever home for me, there's other spaces. Um, but it took a lot of kind of like working through my own mental um, stories and structures to be able to kind of consider those types of things. I think in terms of the field of higher education, I've learned that just like any other field and any other business, you know, 
we see the same types of issues around employment um, that other fields do. And that also like our processes are quite long in comparison. I've had lots of friends that have gone into other fields and their, you know, interview processes and application processes are maybe max a month versus, you know, I think most of my experiences have been, you know, three to four, not more months. And so thinking about what about our structures and what about our systems are, are in play that kind of, you know, elongate and make sometimes our hiring processes and our staffing processes um, unequal. Um, and what ways are we kind of replicating the oppression that we're trying to, you know, change in our work, but in our hiring processes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a great suggestion and a great nudge for many uh, student affairs professionals who are in hiring and the uh, my, my my experience is that uh, people who are in student affairs roles, just about all of them are hiring in a hiring process of some kind at this time of year uh, to uh, to move those along, not just for their benefit, but for candidates, not just the candidates they're going to hire so the candidates can find out they're getting the jobs, candidates can find out they're not getting the job and move on and, and engage in other processes. Um, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, Mohammed, what have you learned about yourself and about student affairs through this process? Uh, what I have learned about myself is that I am as resilient as I think I am, uh, and uh, and uh, nothing really can beat me down. Uh, it actually can, but I know how to get up and, and start running again. Uh, I'm, I don't let anything get to me uh, for a very long time. Um, so that's about myself. What I have learned about the uh, higher ed uh, student affair um, is uh, a position that is similar uh, to a certain extent. If you apply, uh, you can not, uh, possibly not hear from uh, the the organization at all, you might uh, get turned down saying, uh, you know, you don't meet our qualification. You might get an interview, uh, possibly um, like through Zoom or Skype, what have you, or you might get invited to campus for an in-person interview. So it's like there is no standard uh, really, because you are reading the job description, you think, you know, I can do this job. That's the reason you are applying. And uh, and one thing I do is I don't really apply to any job that I think, okay, I'm 50, 60% qualified for. I have to have almost a lot of uh, those, uh, those boxes uh, checked uh, before I do that. Um, uh, and they and I always think about how they say, okay, well, women are the one who usually don't apply unless they meet certain num uh, you know percentage of the, that criteria. I find myself doing the same thing. So, um, because I don't want to waste other people's time and get my hopes up, uh, but unfortunately, there is uh, no standard there that I can say yes, I will get called for or, uh, for an interview, or I won't, or what have you. Just sitting there in the dark waiting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love this notion of uh, of resilience. That th this is a difficult experience, and getting turned down is important. But to not take it personally is is important as you move into this. And I certainly yeah. know in my experience um, choosing candidates when you have 125 in a pool and you have three on campus. Yeah. Um, 
uh, I, I certainly have turned down folks who I thought would be wonderful in the job and would love to work with and, and have built those relationships. So, uh, but it's hard when we're, we don't get it to not create a story. And, and one of the things that I'm, I'm hearing from all of you uh, uh, already is being careful about the stories we tell ourselves the stories we tell right. ourselves about what that means or they didn't like me or I'm not there. And then another thing you're pointing to, Mohammed, is already coming up in some folks sharing on Twitter about, um, you know, nudging folks to apply when you don't feel like you're completely, you know, I'm not 100 percent sure you could do the job, but to, to do some things where there's a reach. There's several folks on Twitter who are saying um, my problem is not that I'm not qualified for the job, but my problem is I'm overqualified for the job. And so people are turning me down because I have too high of qualifications. I have too many years of experience. I, uh, a PhD isn't needed for this. And so you're overqualified and maybe maybe they feel intimidated. By that. Maybe they don't understand that. Maybe they're worried that you won't last there very long. Um, uh, but that's some of what people are, are, are sharing. Um, yeah. And I my think other, uh, other problem, I'm sorry, my other problem is I have a, a working experience in one area of higher ed, and then I have a volunteering non-direct work area because of my personal passion towards uh, in this area. And then, then how the, I have combined them for my dissertation. Uh, so now I'm like, which route should I choose and where will I really fit in? Uh, I can go either way. So that's another yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, Connor, what have, uh, what have you learned? I mean, you've had some personal experiences this with this, which you, you've alluded to, but also doing some, some research and scholarship on this. So you've had an opportunity to talk to lots of folks. Um, what are you learning? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I, I feel like I learn new things about this every day for so many re in so many ways and for so many reasons. Um, you know, really, one of the first pieces of learning that I did about it, about unemployment and underemployment, was learning that we don't talk about it. Um, mm -hmm. That it seemed to be like an off-the-table conversation. It seemed to be a thing that we didn't necessarily know. We, I mean, like higher education and student affairs didn't really know how to talk to people about or didn't really think about a lot of the immediate and secondary impacts that it has on people. You know, I when I was terming out of my contract, um, my the director of my department did set up a meeting with me um, to meet with our human resources folks to talk about what it means to apply for unemployment insurance. And that was and in some ways, it feels like that was was above and beyond what anybody else has sort of experienced. Or sometimes that's like the most helpful compared to the ways that many other people have experienced have had this experience. And so, and that was like one of the first pieces of learning that I did was that it seemed to be a taboo topic, mm -hmm. and. It, it, and I, I recognized this in myself as well, that I, I never thought this would happen to me. I thought I went into higher education because it was a foolproof career path. Um, <laughs> and I see now how that thinking was really um, built up on some really sort of faulty and problematic assumptions on my part and, you know, some of my own sort of hubris and ignorance and privilege. Mm -hmm. um, and probably reinforced by lots of messages uh, from people around you in student affairs, too. 
Certainly. Um, and so having that realization, having the realization that this is a thing that we don't talk about, but that I was constantly meeting people who had had this experience or when I was willing to talk about it, um, pe more people would say, oh, I had that too. And I thought I was the only one or I, you know, I never, I never met another person who wanted to talk about this. Um, I started to say, well, how, how come nobody's looking at this or how come how come we're not having this conversation? And so when I, you know, finished my doctorate and um, got a position and sort of felt like, I felt like it, one of the things that it was really, it meant that I had an opportunity to create some space for this conversation. And so really wanted to take, to take that opportunity up and not let it slip away or not, you know, become part of the group that goes back to not talking about it because it's not impacting me anymore. I mean, the reality is um, it, it's a part of my career trajectory and I feel grateful to have the opportunity to talk about it as part of my career trajectory. Um, but I feel like to not acknowledge that it is a real sort of form formative experience for me would be to discount the ways in which it is a formative experience for so many people. Um, and so I've learned uh, it. So some of the experiences also have been learning to value and appreciate it for what it taught me, even though it was really, really hard and really, really and strained, you know, my a lot of my personal relationships, it was, you know, was very difficult to from it created a lot of complications. Com complications for me in being, you know, a supportive and active partner in my relationship. Um, it, uh, yeah, it was a very hard experience and also like that it is also a part of me. And so honoring sort of both of those things is a process that I'm still sort of learning. And then I think having the experience and doing the research on it continues to teach me. Yeah, I, I mean, you just reminded me of so many, so many lessons about the, the hard stuff is, is hard and we learn so much from it. And uh, there's a real fine balance between not letting it define you and having it be a part of your story. And having it be yeah. part of your story is important, but not letting it define, not letting it be the story, right? Um, which, which can be, be tough in, in how we talk to ourselves. Uh, Alandis, tell us a little bit about um, what you've learned through this. Yeah, um, this is a tough one for me. I developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma while I was working on my PhD, which really taught me what I want out of my life and also like how I want to uh, live my life and prioritize my health first. Um, so that really impacted the way that I went into my job search. Um, and I think that's also why it's taken me so long to find a job that's really been a good fit for my skills and also like what I would like to do. Um, I've also learned throughout this experience how political climates can be, um, specifically like most search committees are looking for a very specific type of person. Um, and if you don't fit their ideal, like extroverted, accommodating model, you're likely not going to get very far in the job search. Um, at least from my perspective, um, I also identify as non-binary, so I know that I, identity impacts the experience that I have interviewing for um, positions as well as talking about how cancer has changed my job trajectory. Um, I've also 
like learned that um, most folks don't really interrogate their biases when it comes mm -hmm. to people with PhDs, trans and queer folks, um, and also people with disabilities and or chronic illness. Um, that can be really tough to work through personally, especially if you haven't really thought about like how, how you're, how you're perceived in the job market. Um, and I think it's also tough because individual, individuals with marginalized perspectives operate very differently in order to survive. Um, mm -hmm. like we take on extra jobs, like we do so much more within our jobs, um, so that we'll be seen as valid and credible. Um, so I've learned that, that tough lesson that you have to make good use and strategic use of your networks um, throughout the process um, in order to like really, really get in uh, the minds of people that like you're capable of doing this work and that you're, you know, like that these identities don't define you. Um, it's more so like they, they actually benefit institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing so much of it, and I'm uh, I'm struck with your experience uh, with uh, with cancer and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, really clarifying what's important to you, right? Um, in in a broader scale. So I, I really appreciate that, and uh, and many of your suggestions around the ways that forms of oppression play out in ways that people aren't even aware of, um, or might even deny. Um, that isn't them. Um, something someone suggested as we were talking about um, having this conversation. Uh, let me know. Sort of, I'm, I don't want to say this out loud, but um, suggested that maybe more and more institutions of higher education are starting grad programs in student affairs and higher education simply to generate revenue, and then because they need to fill those programs, generate re revenue, encouraging and funneling students into these programs. Um, and some of them, uh, when they're really intended to generate revenue, have questionable quality and standards. And then we kind of get this watering down of, of the content, of, of the rigor, uh, of the programs. Um, are, are we creating more student affairs professionals than are needed because it fills a revenue need for, for institutions? Um, and I'd love to hear from some of you about what you think about this is it seems like sort of we need programs to raise money and now that we've got a program now we need students so we'll push students into it and student various professionals have a wonderful opportunity because we work so directly with so many undergrads um alandis let's uh let's let's turn this controversy right over to you what do you think uh yeah well Geraldine had originally mentioned higher ed as a business and i i would I would say yes and no to this conversation or this question. Um, you know, I would hope that these programs are preparing students to be great scholar practitioners. Um, but if a program isn't using standards like the, the CAST standards or Council for Advancement of Standards, or even using some of the ACPA, NASPA joint list of competencies to help, you know, promote good work, I would really question those programs and if they're doing a disservice to the students. Um, I think it's also important that we we hope that students know that jobs are never guaranteed. Um, 
you have to put in effort and also, you know, have a good fit with an institution. But as we know, fit is also one of those like forms of oppression that, that gets kind of weaved in through job search processes. Um, and likewise, I anticipate that programs are going to become more selective as we keep, you know, as we keep developing new programs, uh, especially top programs. And I would like to see maybe us adopting some different types of practices, like becoming more selective for, um, for those assistantships, like, you know, other programs do with residencies and internships um, and making it a really clear uh, connection and value of their time and effort um, within a graduate program. Um, I think also in this age of political precarity uh, and dwindling budgets, you know, nationwide, I think we also need to reimagine our roles in ways that help sustain our field as a necessary part of collegiate life. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, why don't you uh, speak, a, could, would you be willing to speak a little bit more about FIT and uh, how that can oftentimes be misused uh, as a way to uh, validate our, our conscious and unconscious biases? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, like when we think about like what we're looking for in a, po a position. Um, so, for example, I put on my applications pretty clearly that, you know, I use they, them, their pronouns. Um, I have a PhD. I hear from probably about 5% of the applications that I fill out. Mm -hmm. um, so if you think about like how things get unconsciously translated into opportunities for interviews or on campus interviews, if they've seen you and can identify like, Hey, this person doesn't look like a normal person. Um, or they have some kind of unconscious bias around race, gender, sexuality, ability, et cetera. Um, I think a lot of those things get, get funneled through the job search process, um, not necessarily consciously, but mostly unconscious. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think fit can, fit can often be a yeah. way to uh, legitimize and rationalize without speaking to those biases. This person makes me yeah. uncomfortable for these reasons that I don't want to uh -huh. say. So I just think they're not going to be a good fit. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And we want to give a shout out to uh, the folks who uh, um, wrote uh, with Stylus and ACPA debunking the myth of job fit in higher education and student affairs. Um, you can find that online. I'm sure Erica will be able to get that out in the into the Twitter universe from our want to unpack a little bit more of that. It's a it's an excellent it's an excellent book on one of these bookshelves back here behind me already. Um, Mohammed, what do you what do you think about uh, the the student affairs grad programs and um, are we are we creating uh, are we creating professionals where maybe the need doesn't match? Well, uh, back when I actually accidentally came across uh, uh, my grad program uh, at the University of Central Arkansas and. Uh, I had already uh, resigned from my position and gone uh, overseas for family reasons. And then I'm, I was going to come back. 
And I started from UCA because I wanted to see what do they have, and I found the program. And ever since I'm I'm seeing, there are a lot, I didn't know that such a beast existed. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I find now that there are lots of uh, graduate uh, um, programs, uh, college student personnel type programs. And my feeling to that is, um, yes, I think, we are all, there are too many programs and a lot of stu uh, persons, folks are interested in the programs, but I question if, if eventually these folks are going to be happy in, a, in working in the student affairs, uh, in the student personnel field uh, also, because uh, I have seen from personal experiences uh, with, uh, because of that revolving door situation, uh, you come in thinking about, okay, this is my, you know, stepping stone and you hate the position and or, or your your duties your jobs uh and uh, you don't uh, you are not student focused and you just do a terrible job so your heart is not there so if your heart is not there you make it uh, harder for other folks around you to do their job uh it, it, we really need to also think about it. Do I really want to do this job? Is it like, is it burning in my stomach that I have to, I mean, is this my passion? I started, uh, Never mind. Uh, I'm not going to go into that. Uh, I, I really love the student affairs field and I want to stay engaged in the higher ed or maybe in uh, K-12. I'm not sure if that, what happens, but I want to be in education one way or another. I know that, and uh, my focus is student-centered. I'm very much student-centered, so graduate programs, I cannot say really that they are diluting the program per se, but um, they're got to be a very uh, a bit tighter grip on the rigor of the program. Uh, it, it, I don't know if it is NASPA or ACPA or combined somehow, or NCDA as well in that um, everybody come together, working together at the, um, you know, those organizational level and then saying, okay, as, as, a, as a combined uh, paradigm, this is what we want you all to, uh, to do. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I have noticed, a lot of the programs are very uh, residential life focused. Uh, so if you are uh, not in the residence life and have those expertise uh, going into the graduate program, it is going to be difficult for you to go into uh, another areas of student affairs. Mm -hmm. so that's from my personal experience and what I have uh, observed over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Gerilyn. How about you? What do you think of our, our funnel and pipeline? Yeah, so I mean, I think a lot of what we see nowadays has to also do with, you know, the economics of and like societal changes in our country. So you've seen that we can see that folks, you know, go for higher education degrees because they feel like they need it. Now that like, you know, just getting a bachelor's degree isn't enough or not, or even just having a high school degree isn't enough to, you know, be able to have a job that's going to help you live. You know, it's going to help you like take care of your family. That's going to help you be able to, you know, live your best life. Um, 
and pursuit of happiness, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, more people are staying in, in school and trying to find other ways of doing things. And so I think sometimes, you know, we have so many great student leaders that we work with throughout lots of different programs um, in, our, in our universities. And that doesn't necessarily mean that all of them have to go into higher education. I think sometimes you get into this feeling of like, oh, well, you were such a great orientation leader. Why don't you go and get a degree in higher education and then like work in orientation? Like, if someone wants to do that, absolutely. And I um, and that's kind of how I ended up um, in higher education in some ways. Um, but there's also there's lots of ways that people can kind of utilize their passions and their experiences in ways that create change um, that aren't higher education. And so I think that's something to interrogate, I think, as student affairs professionals ourselves, um, when we're advising students about, you know, where they want to go and what choices they have, um, that we're not necessarily kind of like projecting onto them in that way. And then it's also the reality that because, you know, you, you know, need more money, um, you know, you might need more job security for longer nowadays, we aren't seeing necessarily people retire um, at the ages that, you know, we would have a decade ago. And so people are staying in positions longer and can't um, financially transition out into, you know, retirement um, and pensions and things like that because of our ec economy um, and because of, you know, societal um, woes and things like that. And so I think um, we're seeing kind of a little bit of this stagnation in that, you know, there's lots of energy and interest around higher education and education and, you know, how, um, we are creating these spaces for learning um, and for change, but that the support um, is not quite there to be able to support people um, ethically through these processes. And I think mm -hmm. something goes back to also thinking about resources. We're thinking about this job search is that, you know, if you have access to the right resources, if you have access to the right people, um, if you have, you know, maybe some disposable income to fall back on, then you're, Tech, you can be in a better space to be able to write out a job search, to be able to access, you know, certain types of jobs or certain types of people to be able to find things. But the reality is, is that, you know, we live in an unequal society. And so folks are coming in and accessing, um, you know, jobs and opportunities at different places. And so there's some folks that, you know, really just have to take what they can get and take what they can find because they have, you know, other responsibilities. And so it might not be the best fit. It might be a terrible fit, but this is what you're going to do and what you're going to put yourself through in order to, you know, manage things, take care of things. Or people will find that, you know, I have a certain, you know, needs or certain identities that, you know, need to be taken into consideration in my job search. And, the majority of institutions out there aren't going to look at that. I'm very real about my identities in my cover letters, and I sometimes think about, you know, did those things factor into why I didn't necessarily get um, as many calls or phone interviews or, um, you know, invites to campus. Um, but I try not to think about that as much because I'm like, if they were going to look at, you know, who I am and, you know, how I portray myself, and not want me, then I didn't want them. But that's also like, sometimes it's also a hard place to get to sometimes. Sure, sure. Thanks. Well, and Connor, you are uh, now a faculty in one of these grad programs. So I I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Yeah, uh, well, first and foremost, uh, retweet to everything my friends and colleagues have said because I feel I feel like they were reading my notes. <laughs> um, and you know, one of the things that really stood out to me was that um, 
the one thing that previous literature on this experience sort of says is like an acknowledgement that one of the reasons why people leave the field in that tradition, in that like oft quoted, you know, within the first three to five years is for lack of opportunity for advancement. Um, you know, people realize that, or so, you know, people stagnate or, you know, they are bound to a location and there isn't an opportunity for them to do anything other than this thing, which they may not, may no longer want to do. And so it's time to look elsewhere or potentially like they term out of a contract and can't find anything because of whatever circumstances. Um, and so thinking about how that also plays out when you have, um, when when you have an economic downturn that really like significantly impacts higher education so i was working um for the california state university system uh when the 2008 economic crash happened and we, we you know we were furloughed and there were hiring freezes throughout the system and it wasn't just the california state system it wasn't just california even that got substantively impacted but you know there were hiring freezes and i think in a lot of ways that I, I, you know, I have to, I, I want to read more to see if this is backed up by data, but it seemed as though that was one of the times when people really stopped moving up or, you know, it seemed like the traditional trajectory that we talk about in the field, you know, you be a hall director for three years, then you become an assistant director, then you become a director, and then you either hang out in the director level or somebody brings you in to be an AVP and you sort of move into the executive suite um, wasn't happening anymore, or at least that timeline sort of slowed down um, pretty substantially. And so thinking about how higher ed doesn't exist within this vacuum that like, uh, as Geraldine had said that, and, and as Alandis had said that, you know, the there's a lot of political factors, and I mean that both in terms of like our national sort of governmental politics and also, you know, sort of the broader notion of politics that play a role in like how higher education is situated within a system and is uh, and is its own representation mm -hmm. of that system. You know, I think the I, I think we, you know, the the emphasis on a gig economy right now can feel sort of incompatible with the very sort of career and vocation, vocational framework that higher education is talked about as. Um, and, you know, the, and that's not to say that either one of those is right or wrong, but just like, how do we make sense of, how do we make sense of higher education in a world that doesn't necessarily think about careers in the same way? I mean, if uh, the average person is going to change careers several times over the course of their lifetime, um, having a specialized degree in, in a thing is going to have a different place in the world. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I think a lot of those, uh, as I'm listening to my colleagues sort of share their brilliance, those are some of the things that are popping into my mind or some of like the, some of the sense and the meaning that I'm making of, of it. And, deepening my reflection on my own thoughts. Um, 
I realized I sort of spaced on what the question was. So I don't even remember if oh, I had... just talking about the just talking about yeah. the, the pipeline. But, but, but what you shared is great. Um, we did get a question. Uh, uh, someone saw that we were going to be having this conversation and asked, uh, "How do you if you've had unemployment? How do you how do you talk about this? How do you how do you manage this in the resume and on your applying?" We were chatting in our, our pre-show chat, and Alandis, you you said you've never gotten this question, and I would yeah. love to because you've been proactive about it. So how have you been proactive about it? Because I think that's that's a great strategy. Yeah, so like Gerilyn, like I include information about my identity in my cover letters. I make sure that people know. Um, and for for a lot of people, like making sense of like, oh, I was in recovery from cancer. So of course I have some gap in between my PhD and my, you know, like what I'm doing right now and applying for all these jobs. Um, and like, just trying to make sense of like, Hey, you know, I've been focusing on my health so much that it really, it like job searching has taken a back seat. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's not the most important thing for me right now. I need to get well before I can even do a job. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, for me, it was, it was really making the conscious decision to put my health first, um, before putting other things first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I just, I mean, that's a particular way to get ahead of it. But I, I just yeah. think um, if it's a question that uh, a resume screener or a player or an interview is going to have, don't wait to uh, be proactive about it and, and, and explain it. Uh, any, anyone else uh, have thoughts about how to manage that? Uh, Gerilyn, I just saw you do the okay. universal sign of raving your hand. So go ahead. What, how have you navigated this or what suggestions yeah. would you have? So I actually did get this question um, in, in an interview process. And so um, one thing I would say is also to think about this as a fact that like a lot of people go through unemployment. Like it might feel like, you know, no one else is talking about this because we don't really talk about it that much. But there's so many people that go through, you know, unemployment for even years. And even like the like federal data doesn't count for that because what's coming into the federal government is actually like people that are applying for unemployment, but you only get it for so long, depending on what your situation is. And sometimes also people, you know, kind of get fed up with the system because it's, you know, sometimes it's not the greatest. Um, and they don't, and they don't, you know, check in to say like, you know, I'm actually unemployed or I'm underemployed. So the reality is that so many people go through this. And so whenever I feel like, you know, it's something shameful to share, it's that the reality that anybody can be unemployed in any second um, and that there's no real security, um, at least with the way, way our government and nation is situated at the moment. But that's a conversation for another time. And so the way that I kind of utilized my experiences to talk about, you know, that gap was really, you know, speaking to some of the volunteering I was doing or, you know, how I was, you know, Get, I had a couple friends that were, you know, creating um, nonprofits or worked at nonprofits and needed someone to come in and do some, you know, strategic consulting and things like that. And for some of them, I was doing it for free. Other people did give me a little bit of money, which was wonderful. But being able to utilize some of those spaces um, to talk about, you know, what I was still doing with my time in between um, and talk about, you know, how I was still working on myself. So if you're, you know, reading, if you're, you know, keeping up on things, if you have a chance to go to any regional or national conferences, if you're, you know, 
volunteering with youth, if you're working in schools, if you're you know doing anything else, doing anything basically, you know, being able to think about how you can frame that and offer that to say, you know, I'm still active, I'm still you know taking care of myself um, professionally and still engaged, and utilize that kind of um, those types of experiences to talk about that kind of um, gap necessarily in your resume. Right. Right. So uh, we're, we're coming up to, to, to wrapping up our time here a little bit. Um, a couple of things that I'm sort of hearing at the macro level, many of you are reminding me, I, I believe it's Gallup's uh, research, um, is that, this is, that, that being unemployed is one of the hardest things that people experience. It, it took longer to co recover emotionally from being unemployed and losing a job than it did from the loss of a partner or spouse. Um, and I think you're pointing to many of those things where this gets wrapped up in identity and the shame and don't talk about it and you can't share it with others. Um, so uh, this, this is a hard thing to experience. The other thing that uh, some of the national trends around higher education and, and where things have started to bottle up, I've also seen that happen locally in a particular market. The VPs don't move on, which means the deans don't move up, which means the directors don't have anywhere to go. And you just kind of get this, this bottleneck of folks and, and opportunities. And then the, the things that I'm, I'm hearing from you all and also some of the, the conversation on Twitter is what a, what a huge factor uh, systems of oppression and unconscious bias are as part of this. Um, a real call to be much more ethical about how we post, how we conduct processes, how we navigate that, particularly in being a little bit more transparent and how we communicate. I think a lot of people are not transparent because they feel like that's what they have to do in a job search process. Uh, but being much more transparent and much more nimble in our processes so we can hire different candidates who bring different talents and different skills, do so more quickly, we can, we can better communicate with folks. Um, some great, great suggestions. I know a lot of people are interested in um, how they can support their colleagues and their friends and their coworkers who maybe uh, have exper are experiencing unemployment or maybe are underemployed. Um, uh, what suggestions you, would you have for folks who really want to be there um, in, in a way that is supportive and empowering for folks who are going through this? Let's begin with Mohammed. I, I wanted to raise my hand because uh, last semester I was taking a crisis intervention class for uh, a counseling class uh, for student affairs. And uh, you are right. It's, it felt like... Uh, like a death of a partner or a loved one, a, a parent even, if you are close or a child, whoever you are the closest to, it felt like it was a death of that person. So uh, getting over that, it's, it's very difficult. That hole, I don't think, will ever fill for me. Um, and even if it fills, the scar will be there. Um, what others can do really is not do the victim blaming because mm. that becomes uh, you must have done something wrong and uh, there is and, and and that comes from another place and i want to be mindful of that as well uh, in my absence when i was gone to bangladesh for four months my ex-wife and kids were in the house. They were preparing for me to come back and sell the house and move back to Bangladesh permanently. And I was like, not until the last drop of blood, I am not gonna leave because nothing happened in Bangladesh. I mean, over here, I can go work at Walmart and maybe make, uh, make my bills and, and what have you and my mortgage. But in Bangladesh, I cannot do it. Uh, so 
their stresses, understanding mm -hmm. where they are. They did victim blaming to not to that extent, but uh, it was there. The undercurrent was there, and I could I could tell. I'm 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 a smart person, mm -hmm. uh, and I have to remind myself. My son uh, uh, calling me. Uh, we talk very loudly, so it sounds like it sounded like as if we were fighting, but we were not. And he was like passionately telling me to apply for jobs in in housing and residence life. And I'm like, Adam, I'm not gonna be looked at because I don't bring any of those experiences. I have transferable skills. But somebody who is already in there, they are the one that are going to get the uh, priority for those positions. So victim blaming and ask, how can I help you? I don't know what you need. Uh, don't offer uh, unwanted, unsolicited advice because you don't know what is going to trigger what reaction, what emotion. Uh, so, and you don't want to do that either. So I yeah. have to be very clear with everybody. It's like, don't try to help me unless I am asking for help. And the only person I would ask for help is my ex-wife because she knows what I'm looking for in a job and she will just forward me a job posting every once in a while. Right. That's a, that's a great commentary about how this can uh, be hard, not just on the person who's unemployed, but those closest to them, including their families, and uh, asking people, what is it that you need? How can I be helpful? Other suggestions folks, uh, other folks would have? I would say just know your support systems and what exists for, you know, who's out there in your life that is, you know, able to help you for whatever that might be, whether that's like reading a cover letter or review, like giving you feedback on your resume or CV or whatever that, that might be, um, like knowing people at institutions and like talking to them, like saying, Hey, you know, like, do you mind reaching out about this specific position? Um, it was something I was really hesitant to do at first because it felt like I, I don't know, like I was taking advantage of those connections um, in maybe some like inequitable ways. Um, but I've I've come to realize like, no, they want they're there. They want to help you. Um, mm -hmm. And if I can have those people as colleagues, of course, you know, I want I want to be able to work with them. Um, but I won't, you know, get anywhere if I don't apply. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. And like. I know this is trite, but like, don't give up on yourself and your own abilities. Um, and I think like we can be our own sense of like support for ourselves and like taking good care of ourselves and making sure that, you know, we're, we're attending to the things that we need to attend to before this job search stuff gets figured in. Um, mm. so yeah, like take care of yourself first and foremost, you know, take care of your responsibilities do that however you can um, and use the people that are in your life, um, friends, family, co-worker or past co-workers, um, maybe future, future co-workers to support that. Yeah. So I, I love hearing from Mohammed. Uh, other people ask how you can help these folks and hearing from you saying, ask for help. You know, if you, if you need some help in that support or reaching out, and that, that's why we have these relationships is to, to be in relationship with each other. Jerry Lynn or Connor, anything you want to add as we wrap up? Uh, 
So I will I will take the opportunity to encourage people who have positions of power and influence in professional organizations to take some time to examine how professional development opportunities are or are not accessible to student affairs professionals who are unemployed um, or experience and. And so I specifically talk about unemployment. That's a lot of what my current research focuses on is specifically people who are unemployed. Um, but a lot of the opportunities and a lot of the networking that has been talked about and a lot of the solicited advice sort of happen and some unsolicited advice too uh, happens at conferences and at other professional development opportunities. And so if people don't have an institution to pay for them to go, if people don't have PD funds, if people's sort of side hustle that's sustaining them while they're job searching does not pay for people to afford $500 flights plus hotel plus 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 to do some of the necessary additional work of doing a job search or of networking as a function of job searching. Um, then then the problem then that's one of the ways that the problem is going to continue to perpetuate itself so i would so i would say that folks who have opportunities to influence policy at the institutional level and also at the systems level for our field um, it, one of the ways that they could offer support is by examining how how the infrastructure is or may not be set up to support people experiencing unemployment. Thank you. That's a great, that's a great nudge to, that we not just get at this, the micro level, but at the macro level as well. And there are people who have not experienced this, who uh, can have a great bit of influence. Geraldine, any uh, final words of wisdom for us? I mean, I would just say, you know, know that, you know, you're not alone in these experiences um, and that, you know, no matter, Feel what you feel, you know, embrace that, you know, um, take care of yourself because you are important um, and that, you know, your job and your career is not, you know, indicative of your self-worth. Um, create a community around yourself, not just folks that are in higher ed, but folks that are in lots of different spaces um, that, you know, will pour into you, whether that means, you know, helping with professional development or just you know, reminding you to get out of the house sometimes or, you know, folks that can give you different perspectives because, you all, everyone has something to give and offer and skills to utilize uh, on behalf of themselves and others. And that that can sometimes look like higher education. That can look like lots of other things. So also, you know, think creatively about who you want to be and what work you want to do um, and let that guide you through your process and know that, you know, this is not something that only you are going through. That there's lots of folks out there that are, you know, right alongside you in this journey. Awesome. Well, I want to thank all of you so much uh, for your, your willingness to be on this episode and to share your own personal experiences and your own stories, to share the impact on you and, and uh, to be able to help others who are experiencing that and to help others help those who are doing that. Um, and also some great reminders about oppression and unconscious bias and ethics and how people who are managing hiring processes uh, can do such a better job of that. So thanks to all four of you for your for your wonderful contributions. I think this would be a really meaningful episode for folks to come to and, and to watch down the road. Um, grateful to all of you and the great work of our producers and Erica Thompson, who's tweeting uh, out behind the scenes. 
Um, you can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter or browse our archives at higheredlive.com. A couple of upcoming episodes on uh, Wednesday, April 24th, uh, Sonia Arduin and Becky Martinez will be joining me for a discussion about social class and higher education. And on Wednesday, May 1st, uh, Brian McGowan and Dan Tillipa will join me uh, to talk about their new book around men and masculinities in higher education. So those are a couple of new ones coming up. Uh, and Tony Duty will also be sharing some new broadcasts uh, on the Student Affairs Student Affairs Live uh, website. Again, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Thanks again to our fabulous guests today and to everyone who's watching. Please go ahead and make it a great week. Thank you all so much.